Okay, then we will start our new discussion of atomic spectra. So the notes that are printed out, or that you may have printed out off the web, that I'm presenting are from uh, primarily the book by Fowles, the little uh, modern optics book that I said was 20 bucks or something. Um, so you're not going to find most of this in Demtroder. It's uh, perhaps a little bit too basic, or at least uh, more fundamental theory uh, that sort of precedes the laser spectroscopy that's talked about in Demtroder. So what we're going to do is talk about the, attempt, the elementary theory of the atom, so the Bohr model of hydrogen. So we'll start with hydrogen. It's the simplest atom. Um, we can mathematically fit functions very easily to the observed um, energy level spectrum of hydrogen. We can come up with some sort of rationale for, the, uh, for motivating those mathematical uh, descriptions of the atom. Uh, we will introduce some of the quantum mechanics. We're not going to do the full quantum derivation, but we'll uh, introduce the various quantum numbers, talk about how they uh, affect the uh, optical spectrum, talk about the different types of transitions that are allowed and forbidden and uh, what it means for a transition to be allowed or forbidden in terms of the, the Bohr theory of the atom. And then we'll uh, come up with some expressions for atomic energy levels, not only for hydrogen, but we'll generalize to other uh, alkaline metals, alkaline atoms uh, that have similar structure with a single outer electron. And this is probably beyond what we'll get to today, but then uh, next time we'll talk about molecular energy levels and the additional degrees of freedom that are included when you have more than just a single atom. Uh, so that's going to be rotation and vibration and what we call row vibration we'll see today. Um, well, the, the work we do today will lay the foundation for why we don't have purely rotational or vibrational states. We tend to have row vibrational states. Um, so next time we'll look at bonds and then we'll do some, uh, some data-driven analysis where we will uh, be given some spectra. We'll try to use what we learned today and next time to take just an observed spectrum and try to figure out what we're looking at. Okay, so spectra of a black body object, sunlight, for instance, uh, is continuous. So we can see that in the sort of rainbow that's produced by light reflecting off or refracting through a prism or a piece of beveled glass. Um, so we've all seen something like this. And a plot of a black body spectrum shows this continuous uh, spectral density that has various peaks that depend on the temperature. And that is starkly different than the spectrum you see if you have an atomic or molecular gas um, that's emitting rather than a, thermally, uh, a thermal blackbody distribution. Okay, so this is the atomic spectrum of neon, and these atomic spectra are characterized by this band structure. Yes, these bands, uh, if they were plotted, if we plotted the uh, spectral energy density, instead of being this continuous function, uh, it would seem to have delta functions at various wavelengths associated with these bands. And we already derived in the last homework that the absorption lines uh, in a spectrum are not really delta functions, they're Lorentzian, and they have some finite line width. And these emission spectra lines as well will have a Lorentzian line shape. But, uh, 
for, our, for the purposes of today's discussion, we'll treat these uh, lines as being truly infinitesimally small, meaning uh, single wavelength, discrete energy level transitions. So these line spectra can be observed both in emission, like what I just showed, where you have um, certain wavelengths that are emitted from a hot gas, um, and that can be resolved by dispersing the light so that the different wavelengths illuminate a different uh, region of a CCD camera or film. And we can see the same, or I guess the complementary spectrum uh, to this emission spectrum when we pass light through a cold gas and instead of emitting at these particular frequencies, it absorbs light at those frequencies. So starting with some uh, white light source, some black body uh, emitter, say our light bulb here, uh, if we start with this continuous spectrum, we pass that light through a cold gas or uh, some cold matter, we would expect that uh, there will be absorption at the lines associated with the energy level transitions in the material. Okay, so this is the basics of how emission and absorption uh, spectroscopy can tell us about the uh, material that's absorbing. So we'll go and look at the uh, quantum mechanics of what happens here in the material that determines what wavelength those absorption and emission lines will be at. Okay, so the Bohr theory of the atom is sort of the classical picture, that, semi-classical picture of the atom that uh, most of us have in our head from high school, uh, high school physics or chemistry. And it uh, is useful in describing these observed line spectra. And it was based on two postulates. Um, one is that an electron can only occupy certain discrete orbits. So if you have an electron, say, okay, we'll use this, this picture here. If we have it in a certain orbit, uh, if there's an additional electron, so we go from hydrogen to helium, the additional electron has to have a different orbit. Um, and we'll see that those are uh, generalized in the more modern quantum picture as uh, quantum states. An orbit is a quantum state. So the normal orbit of an electron, or the normal quantum state, we call the ground state. It's normal in the sense that in thermodynamic equilibrium, most, uh, most atoms would have their, their population in the ground state. Okay, so that's the first postulate. The second is that um, in going from one orbit to another, and so usually uh, we would draw these as sort of concentric circles in a plane. Going from an inner orbit to an outer orbit requires some additional energy. And vice versa, going from an outer orbit to an inner orbit releases some additional energy. And that energy radiates away as, a, as light with a particular frequency. So I'm using nu today to represent frequency. It's just due to the fact that the textbook that I pulled these notes out of use nu. I just wanted to keep it consistent with the textbook. Um, so last time we talked about omega as the angular frequency. Here nu is a linear frequency. So omega would be in radians per second. Nu is in hertz. It's related to omega by uh, 2 pi nu is omega. 
Okay, so uh, the frequency of radiation emitted when an electron goes from an outer orbit to an inner orbit is going to be given by the energy level difference between those orbits divided by h. So h is Planck's constant. It has dimensions of energy times time. So either joule seconds or electron volt seconds are some common uh, units we'll use for that. And so you can see we've got an energy divided by an energy times time. We're going to have dimensions of frequency. Okay, so these, um, these postulates will describe um, or allow us to describe these discrete spectra very well. Um, but they were, they were revolutionary at the time. There was no sort of, no thinking that led to this, uh, or that was leading towards this. It was simply um, steps that would, in the end, uh, result in uh, correct modeling of those, those discrete energy spectra. And so if energy is, or if the energy stored in the atom is emitted uh, as transitions go from discrete states, that there are discrete energies that are emitted, and we call the, the energy in the optical field that radiates away a photon. And so a photon is a quantum a unit, a single element of energy in an optical field. And we tend to draw a picture that shows absorption as a photon coming in. I usually draw a little wavy line to represent that this is a, a light wave. Photon coming in and exciting an atom or molecule that's in a low state to a higher state. And so this line here represents the transition from the low state to the high state. And that, of course, that energy level um, from the second postulate of Bohr's theory must match the energy available in this photon. So only a photon of a certain frequency can excite that energy level. And then vice versa, going from a higher state to a lower state gives off a photon. Okay, so in order to obtain the correct values for the observed spectra that this theory was attempting to match, it was necessary to require that the um, orbitals had angular momentum that was a discrete integer number of h-bars. So h-bar is, is h over 2 pi, Planck's constant over 2 pi. So it has the same dimensions as, as Planck's constant, um, energy times length. Energy times length is also the dimension of angular momentum. So h-bar has units of angular momentum, or has dimensions of angular momentum. And we say that the angular momentum of an electron in a given orbital is some integer number of h-bar. Now, there's various motivations for this and for various consequences, if you like. We sort of draw picture of the Bohr atom with a proton at the center, an electron orbiting around it. One of the consequences 
of having a discrete value for the angular momentum is that there will be a discrete number of wavelengths of the, the Broglie wavelength, the matter wave for the electron that causes it to, um, to cause the wave function to be continuous around the circle. Okay, so we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves talking about the wave function. But if angular momentum were not quantized, you could have a wave function that, when you go around this orbit, does not repeat itself. And that would not uh, make sense from a self-consistency argument. So this n, the integer number of units of angular momentum contained in an orbital, is called the principal quantum number. Or we call it the principal quantum number. So for a hydrogen atom in the ground state, what is n for the electron? 1. Yeah. So it starts at 1. It's the, it's the ground state is going to have the least amount of energy, um, therefore the least amount of angular momentum possible, and n is going to be 1. Okay, so we can use these, um, these three postulates now that have introduced quantum mechanics at a very basic level. The, the quantumness is that the angular momentum is quantized. It cannot be an arbitrary value. It has to be some integer multiple of h bar, the quantum mechanics of it. But we can apply that to some classical equations for how our orbiting electron should behave. And we can derive some properties of the atom. So um, if we just were to draw a free body diagram of our orbiting electron, We treat it as traveling in a circle. There must be a centripetal force. We would expect that's due to the electrostatic attraction of the nucleus and the electron. So that force is just going to be 1 over 4 pi epsilon naught q1, q2 over r squared. That's just the electrostatic force between two charges. And q1 and q2 both have magnitude of E. This is a minus E, and that's plus E. And the minus just means it's pointing in, which I've explicitly drawn it that way, so I'm not going to put the minus there. Okay, so that's the force. Uh, classical mechanics tells us F equals MA. Newton tells us F equals MA. So that has to equal MA. And if this is going to travel in a circular orbit, the acceleration ought to be v squared over r. And so we can use this. And we can use the fact that angular momentum is quantized. So angular momentum. be some integer number of h bar. And classically, angular momentum is p cross r. And 
for an object in circular motion where the velocity is perpendicular to the radial vector, this cross product gives us a, uh, a magnitude which is just mvr. So the magnitude of the angular momentum should equal nh bar. So I will use these two relationships. This one purely classical. This one is where we relate the classical quantity to the quantum quantity. And now I can, for example, solve for a radius here in terms of h bar and the velocity and plug it in here. Or if I like, I can solve for the velocity in terms of n and h bar. That's actually what I'm going to do. Check that's yeah, that's what I did on the Okay, so let me start over here. Say V squared is equal to R over M four pi epsilon naught E squared over R squared. This R cancels one of those. first expression I have in the notes. But this radius can't be just any value. There are discrete orbitals. So we'll see in a minute. The value of r depends on the value of n. Okay, so from here, v is equal to N H bar over M R. Again, that's the radius of the nth orbital. That gives me the velocity for an electron in the nth orbital. I'm doing all these for the nth orbital. So now I can set these two together. For example, solve for the radius of the nth orbital, r sub n. And what I find is the radius of the nth orbital depends on the value of n. So higher values of n lead to larger radii. 
and all these terms over here, which are constants. Okay, so we can calculate that out, give this collection of constants a name, which itself will be a constant. And we call that uh, A sub H, the Bohr radius for hydrogen. So the sub H stands for hydrogen. And you can evaluate this. It works out to uh, about 0.53 angstroms. And so what it tells us is, you plug in n equals 1, that's the ground state. The radius of the electron cloud in the ground state is on the order of 0.5 angstroms. And that's, that's about right. So this is all classical. The only bit of the only quantization here is that the angular momentum be quantized. Okay, now we can talk about the energy. The energy is important because we expect that uh, different energy levels, as uh, population trans transitions between different energy levels, we should have photons given off of specific frequencies. That's from the second postulate. And we'd like to know what those frequencies are. Or if we know those frequencies, we'd like to say something about the energy level of the atom. Um, so with the given radius, we can calculate a velocity. And in classical mechanics, if you know the velocity of an object, you can find its energy. You can find its kinetic energy. So the energy has two components, a kinetic energy, 1 half mv squared, and then an electrostatic potential energy, which we write as minus q1, q2 over 4 pi epsilon naught r. It's just the standard electrostatic potential. And now if we plug in for v, let's see, I guess if we plug in for v squared, this expression here, Vn squared is equal to E squared for 4 pi epsilon naught m. And then for R, I'll plug in n squared times a sub h. Okay, so this velocity up here is right here. And you'll notice it has the same form as the potential energy. It has the same um, the same quantities in the denominator that the expression for the potential energy has. So when I multiply this velocity squared by 1 half m, I have 1 eighth times some constants minus 1 quarter times some constants. And so that gives me for the total energy minus 1 eighth times those same constants. 
which I have right there. And now I can plug in my value for r. I kind of got ahead of myself over here. I'm just plugging it in for the velocity. I'll follow what I did on the notes. So the energy of the nth level should look like minus e squared over 8 pi epsilon naught r sub n. r sub n is n squared a sub h. So therefore, the energy of the nth level is going to have a factor that is constant and a dependence on the principal quantum number, it's an inverse square dependence. And I'll call all of I'll call these constant factors here. Again, I'll give them a name. We'll call that the Rydberg constant. The Rydberg constant for hydrogen. Or sometimes it'll just be referred to as the Rydberg constant. So that's right here. You can evaluate that in EV. It works out to 13.6 EV. And we can apply a meaning to this if we think a little bit about the, what the energy diagram would look like for our hydrogen. So this is the ground state down here. Uh, what is the energy level of the ground state? It's just the Rydberg constant. Uh, so it's minus 13.6 CV. So usually we'd say the ground state is at zero. So what are we defining as zero energy here? The electron is free. If it's infinitely far away. And that comes from our potential energy of two charges. It's usually defined as the potential energy relative to the charges being infinitely far away. Okay, so that's why we end up with a negative, negative energy. Okay, so the energy is a function of distance. Uh, as we get infinitely We start at an energy level of zero. We get down to an energy of minus 13.6 eV. And because the energy is quantized now, there's only discrete values, we can have n equals 1, which is an energy level of minus 13.6. If we plug in n equals 2, the radius gets four times larger. And the energy level goes up to uh, whatever that is, uh, one quarter of 
And as we go further and further out, higher and higher principal quantum numbers, the energy asymptotically approaches zero. So this is zero EV over here. And now we can see what this Rydberg constant means. It means for an atom in the ground state, that's how much energy it takes to separate the electron and the, and the nucleus. It's the ionization energy. So visible light has an energy of about an EV. Can you ionize hydrogen with visible light? No, you can't. Um, you need to go basically to x-rays to ionize hydrogen. The same model will be applied to other atoms uh, as the atoms get more complicated, it becomes harder to make these sort of simple arguments that treat, you know, the charge is just that due to, or the force is that just due to a single charge. There's shielding effects, and it gets more complicated. But the basic idea that in order to ionize, in order to break apart the material, you need an energy level that's associated with X-rays, kind of makes sense in terms of our everyday experience, right? Um, being exposed to sunlight is not a big deal. Uh, being exposed to x-rays is. It can damage, damage tissue, damage, damage things. Now, there's other types of, of bonds that can be broken by visible light. Uh, so the melanoma in your skin is a complex molecule, and the covalent bonds have much smaller binding energy. But um, as far as the atoms being torn apart and ionized, um, it takes much more than visible light to do that for typical materials. Okay, so I said the Rydberg constant is 13.6 eV. Um, if you look it up in a textbook, you'll probably see a different value. And the reason is probably in the units. Um, I gave the value in eV, in part because that's uh, convenient units for us to work with. But also the dimensions. I have the Rydberg constant in terms of energy. Um, if you wanted to instead um, plot this not as a the energy levels of an atom, but the frequency of photons necessary um, to ionize an atom in the ground state, the first excited state, the second excited state. You could divide these energies by C, and that would give you frequencies on this axis. And then you could define the Rydberg energy as the frequency, or the Rydberg frequency, as that of the ground state. Likewise, we'll introduce a, a quantity called wave number today. And typically, the Rydberg constant is given in terms of wave number. Okay, so we haven't introduced that yet, but uh, it looks like this with a C and an H in it. Okay, so you'll probably see different values of the Rydberg constant. It's just because of the units we're choosing to use. Okay, so what wavelength photon is necessary to ionize hydrogen? Let's calculate that. So we know immediately what energy the photon has to have. How much energy? Yep, okay, so we want the wavelength associated with 13.6 EV. Okay, so
Let me write it. Like this. The energy of a photon is equal to HF, where F is the frequency. Frequency is C over lambda. So the wavelength associated with a certain energy is HC over So we'll recall that an electron volt is the energy that an electron has when it's accelerated through one volt. And so if we plug in the MKS unit, or the MKS charge of an electron, or the charge of an electron in MKS units, 1.6 times 10 to the minus 19 coulombs, and we multiply that by one volt, we get an energy energy in units of joules. So there's 1.6 times 10 to the minus 19 joules per electron volt. That will let us come up with a numerical answer. Okay, so it's um, it's a conversion factor between joules and, and electron volts, both units of energy. Um, but just to remind you where that comes from, consider um, write it like this. Consider say a capacitor charged up to one volt, and the work it takes you move an electron across that capacitor, across that field. The change in potential energy is Q times delta V. So by definition of voltage, voltage is the potential energy per unit charge. So potential energy is potential energy per unit charge times the charge. And if we have a single electron, uh, that is 1.6 times 10 to the minus 19 coulombs in a voltage of 1 volt, that change in potential energy is, by definition, what we consider 1 electron volt. It's 1 electron moved across a volt. But if we multiply that out uh, numerically, that gives us well, not much to multiply out, just the units. Coulomb times a volt is a joule.
Okay, so I mentioned that visible light has an energy of about an electron volt. So a little more precisely, one electron volt corresponds to light at 1.2 microns. Is that visible? Where is that in the spectrum? What is red light? What is the wavelength of this laser? Higher. 600-ish. Yeah. So, the vis so red is up to 600, maybe 700 nanometers. Beyond that is infrared. So this is in the near infrared. So it's just beyond the visible spectrum. So energy is greater than an electron volt um, correspond to wavelengths that are closer to the visible than the visible. So 91 nanometers is um, 13.6 times smaller than 1.2 microns. Hence, it has 13.6 times more energy than 1 eV. OK, so we can take our diagram here for the energy levels. We can plot it. This isn't drawn exactly to scale, but it's intended so that we can resolve some of the features that we put on it. We can write down the energy level associated with each different quantum number, n equals 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, on up. And then we can look at what happens when an electron transitions between any two states. Okay, from a very high energy level state to the ground state corresponds to an energy difference of 13.6 eV. That's the binding energy, that's a photon of 91 nanometers. So we'd expect this transition here to produce a line in an emission spectrum at 91 nanometers. We could calculate the wavelength associated with each of these smaller energy change transitions. And we could do it for transitions down to the ground state. We could do it for transitions down to the n equals 2 state, the first excited state. n equals 2 state down to the third state, fourth state, fifth state. And for each of these, we would get a series of lines and those lines, the series of lines have been named the largest energy lines are called the Lyman series. The Balmer, Poshen, Brackett, Fund. I don't know if the higher ones have names or not, but um, the Balmer series of lines is commonly referred to and commonly discussed because the energy, well, let's calculate. What is the wavelength of this uh, largest transition in the Balmer series? We have the same expression, but we just replace 13.6 with 3.4. So it's going to be about three times higher. 
or about 300 nanometers. Three hundred nanometers is just in the ultraviolet, and then when we get down to this transition, the shortest transition in the bomber series, from one point five to three point four, that's an energy level difference of about one eb, and we saw that corresponds to about one point two microns, which is just in the infrared. So this series of lines spans from just in the ultraviolet to just in the infrared meaning it's the visible. That series of lines is primarily in the visible spectrum. You observe with your, with your eyes the emission spectrum of hydrogen. You're observing the Balmer series. You may, there may be some um, lines from another series that are also um, mixed in with that. You can see... For example, the n equals 5 to the n equals 3 line has an energy level difference that's similar to that of some of the Balmer lines. And you can take sort of this expression, take the value for the energy, which was quantized and had a 1 over n squared in it, and symbolically calculate an expression for the frequency. When transitioning from state i to state j, it depends on the energy of state i, which is r over n sub i squared, minus the energy of state j, which is r over n sub j squared. That's the difference in energies, and the frequency is the difference in energies divided by h. So we have the 1 over h in front. Okay, so we have a nice expression for the energy, or the frequencies of spectral lines depends on a constant out front and just a series of integers. So if you have an emission spectrum, you could just fit, for different values of integers, you could fit and try to find the, uh, the Rydberg constant for that material. We calculated it for hydrogen. Other materials would have different values for the Rydberg constant. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that the Rydberg constant often has other units. You can here start to see the reason why. It might be useful to express, for example, not r, but r over h, so this constant. And it's related to the Rydberg constant. And you could call that like the Rydberg frequency. It has the same meaning. It would be the frequency necessary to ionize a hydrogen atom. And in fact, we often express quantities in units of inverse centimeter, the quantity is the uh, wave number. We call it the wave number. It's 1 over lambda. So rather than express the wavelength, it's often useful to express 1 over the wavelength. You can see 1 over the wavelength is going to depend on the energy. So if we take the energy associated with the Rydberg constant and we divide it by hc, that's going to give us 1 over the wavelength that ionizes hydrogen. And that's the uh, 
the form you often see the Rydberg constant in. Some energy divided by HC. Okay, so the Rydberg constant in those uh, units is about 10 to the 5 per centimeter yeah, per centimeter. Okay, so 10 to the 5 per centimeter means the wavelength that ionizes hydrogen, 91 nanometers, you can fit 10 to the fifth of them in one centimeter of length. Right. So if you can fit 10 to the fifth of them in one centimeter, each wavelength is 10 to the minus 7 meters. And we've calculated 91 nanometers, which is about 10 to the minus 7 meters. So a quantity expressed in units of per centimeter, or a wavelength written in the number of wavelengths that fit in a centimeter, is a parameter we call the wave number. Okay, it's directly related to k. Remember, uh, this parameter k we had is 2 pi over lambda. We call k the wave vector points in the direction of propagation. So K would usually be measured in radians per meter. Wave number is usually measured in per centimeter. So they differ by a factor of 2 pi over 100. But they're the same physical concept. Okay, so oftentimes we'll see spectra plotted. You have a line spectrum. It will be plotted as a function of wave number. 10 to the 4, 10 to the 5, something like this. Numerical values usually in the thousands. I don't know why. That's the common spectroscopic notation. You could just as equally plot the spectrum in terms of the frequency of the light or in terms of the wavelength, which is sort of inverted, but most commonly plotted in terms of wave number. Okay, so some useful relationships. We already said 1 eV corresponded to about 1.2 electron volts. Um, Sorry, 1.2 micron light. 1.2 micron light, you can fit 8,065 wavelengths into a centimeter. So the wave number associated with 1 eV light is 8065. Um, 400 and 800 nanometers are sort of the ends of the visible spectrum. So the, the blue end of the spectrum is higher energy. Higher energy means higher frequency, higher wave number. You fit more waves in a, in a centimeter, therefore they're higher frequency. And 400 nanometers is about 25,000 centimeters. The red end of the spectrum is at about 12,000 centimeters. So visible light has 
tens of thousands of wave numbers. And just a uh, sort of another useful rule of thumb, in the middle of the visible spectrum, so 500 nanometers is green, um, in the middle of the visible spectrum, the wave number changes by about 40 as the wavelength changes by a nanometer. So if you see a plot that looks like this, where the wave number is given and there's some structure, and you want to know how many nanometers difference are these two lines, you can use the fact that there's about 40 wave numbers per nanometer. So this is just introduction so that when we see this notation later, you're familiar with it. Um, calculating wave numbers is straightforward. If you can convert between energy and wavelength, you can take the inverse of the wavelength expressed in units of centimeters and get a wave number. OK, um, let's talk about some things that affect the value of the Rydberg constant. We wrote the Rydberg constant as R sub h, the Rydberg constant for hydrogen. We'll see that in a moment that it's going to be different for different materials. Um, different materials have different ionization energies. Um, for hydrogen itself, it can be different for different isotopes. Okay, and the reason is that we assumed in our analysis that we have an electron orbiting around a mass, uh, a massive uh, nucleus, and essentially we treat it as um, a fixed nucleus and an orbiting electron. Okay, now. In reality, that's not what happens. We have two discrete masses. They're going to both orbit around some com common center of mass. That center of mass, because the nucleus is so much more massive than an electron, uh, will be very close to the nucleus, but won't be at exactly zero. And so to account for that, we should use the reduced mass. So without any sort of derivation, I'm just going to rely on uh, your potential a possible exposure to classical mechanics uh, and two-body problems where you had a reduced mass um, for calculating the, the dynamics of one mass around some center of mass. So we simply plug U in where Yep. We plug in M, the mass of the electron, and M is the mass of the nucleus. Big M is the mass of the nucleus. We get a value from mu which is called the reduced mass, and we just plug it in everywhere where we have an M. So in every formula that we derived, we just replace the M with the mu. Okay, and you can check. If big M is large compared to little m, what does that do? Um, if big M is large, then this little m in the denominator is negligible. The big M's cancel out, and mu equals little m. So in the limit where the nuclear mass is infinitely larger than the electron, the reduced mass is the same thing as the electron mass. In the limit where they're equal, big M and little m are equal, this works out to m over 2. And that kind of makes sense because 
the center mass is going to be halfway in between. Our radius is half as large. So plugging in a value for the mass that's half as large um, accounts for the fact that we should have plugged in essentially a radius that was half as large. Okay, so in hydrogen, we take the mass of a, a proton to that of an electron. The ratio of M, big M over little m is 1836. However, there are isotopes of hydrogen. There are isotopes that have more than one nucleon. And because hydrogen starts with only a single nucleon, if there is an additional nucleon, if there's a neutron in the nucleus as well, you essentially doubled the mass of the nucleus, doubled the mass of big M without changing little m, and you doubled this value. And that will change the value for mu. The isotope shift is less significant in heavier atoms, where you've got a very massive nucleus, and having one or two extra nucleons has smaller fractional effect on the mass. But if mu changes, that's going to change what we plug in for the mass, and that's going to affect uh, our, I don't have it written out here, our expression for the Bohr radius, and that will affect our expression for the Rydberg constant. That is to say, there will be different binding energies for different, uh, different isotopes. And so if we plotted um, our energy levels, we would have two different, two discrete sets of lines to be slightly, slightly separated. for the two isotopes. And the spectra would have closely spaced, but potentially resolvable lines for the two different isotopes, two or more isotopes. We call that the isotope shift. You see the spectrum shift due to the presence of an isotope. And if the spectrum were, for example, plotting the total amount of energy on a photodetector as a function of wavelength, then we would expect, for instance, that the relative height of the two peaks would tell us something about the relative population of the two isotopes in our sample. And so this can be a useful way for studying the composition, the, the isotopic composition of the material. Okay, we can also look at how the ionization energy is affected by the presence of more and more, um, more and more filled orbitals inside of the valence band, or the, the outermost electron. So if we were to look at the alkali metals, um, atoms that have a single electron in their outermost shell. They share a lot of the chemical properties as hydrogen, which also has a single electron in the outermost shell. And they have an energy spectrum that has, can be described in a similar manner as that of hydrogen. Um, there's some sort of 1 over n squared dependence. There's a couple correction factors that need to be added to empirically describe the observed spectra. 
Um, one is that this value for r is not going to be 13.6, but is going to be different for each different, uh, different atomic species. And there's this correction factor in the denominator that accounts for some of the shielding, that delta factor. It's called the quantum defect. And it depends on how far out the outermost electron is. Okay, so for electrons in the um, first, second, third, fourth, outermost level, um, the spectrum that would be seen for transitions um, from those levels have different sort of properties. And when all this sort of analysis and developing of empirical models of what was seen was being done, um, these different sets of spectra were given names. And we still have some remnants of those names today now that we have a more concrete understanding of, of what's causing the uh, discrete energy lines and the, the relative shape of the spectrum. But there's a series of lines that would appear sharp or diffused. There's a series of lines that was considered principal and that it had the same, um, same re relative spacing as that of hydrogen in the higher alkaline metals. Um, there was a series of lines that was considered fundamental and that they had the, the same absolute energy as that of the hydrogen spectrum. And so these series of lines were labeled sharp, diffuse, principal, and fundamental. And those represent transitions um, from the, I guess, to the um, first four energy states, so the first four orbitals in the lowest, uh, with the lowest principal numbers. So that sharp diffuse principal fundamental is given SPDF names for short. And we know SPDF as the names of the orbital shells. Those actually, I, so I misspoke earlier. Um, those shells refer to um, atoms with different, or electrons that have different uh, angular momentum quantum number, not principal quantum number. We haven't introduced that yet. So it's not the principal quantum number that's relevant, it's the angular momentum quantum number. So we'll introduce that in just a second. So that's where the SPDF comes from when you talk about uh, orbitals. You have 1s, 2s, 2p, 2d, or 3s, 3p, 3d. Um, when we get beyond angular momentum of 3, we go 0, 1, 2, 3, then 4, 5, 6 would be g, h, i, j. And they follow an alphabetical series after that in the uh, name for the different orbitals. Okay, so um, that sort of wraps up the Bohr treatment of the atom, just looking at the different uh, orbits. The only thing that we really treated as being quantized off the bat was the angular momentum. 
And that gave rise to a quantized radius, quantized velocities, quantized energies, quantized frequencies coming out, which is our emission spectrum. We can now look at some, uh, look at a more complete theory, quantum theory of the atom, and introduce some more quantum numbers that give rise to more structure in this spectrum. And to do that, we're going to have to introduce the the uh, idea of a wave function. So I alluded to that when I drew sort of this, uh, these de Broglie wavelengths for the electron that have to repeat after one trip around its orbit. So if we have some wave function that we call psi that depends on r and t, so space and time, psi is a, a parameter whose absolute value squared tells you about the probability of finding an electron or a, a particle at a particular location at a particular time. Okay, so psi squared tells us is the probability density. And it's a wave function in that it's a wave-like solution to the Schrodinger equation. So Schrodinger equation tells us the quantum mechanical operator for kinetic energy plus potential energy acting on a wave function should tell us the total energy. And so we can separate a wave function into a spatial component and a temporal component. We can write the spatial component as a superposition of a bunch of different um, spatial basis functions, and then a temporal component that is just a, uh, a phase that oscillates in time. And then if you have a simple system like hydrogen where you know the electrostatic potential, or you know the potential is due to the electrostatic attraction, you can explicitly solve this. Okay, so um, I said that the spatial component of the wave function could be written in terms of a bunch of uh, basis functions. Those basis functions we call stationary states. So a stationary state is one whose uh, probability distribution is constant in time. So the ground state of a hydrogen atom is an example of a stationary state. The probability of finding the electron at a given radius let me just draw it from r equals zero looks something like this. There's some radius at which the probability of finding the electron is maximized. Does anyone want to guess what value that is? Yeah. It's the Bohr radius. Um, we'll see that there is higher order states or more uh, states that will look like
this. So psi versus r look like that. This is so the, for now we'll just call it first excited state. Um, zero state. So there's various spatial functions that you can solve the Schrodinger equation for and find are, um, are each solutions to the wave or to the Schrodinger equation that don't depend on time. So we call those stationary states or eigenstates of the system. And for those states, there's a um, spatial part of the wave function and then the Temporal part of the wave function is just a phase, phase delay. So the phase of the state is changing, but when you take the absolute value and square it, take the absolute value of this, it's 1. It goes away. And the probability is, is constant in time. And we can write the probability of finding the object uh, basically at point R. This doesn't tell us the probability of finding it at point R. It's a probability density. So we have to multiply. Um, the probability density times some range of, of positions in which we're looking to get the probability of finding this particle within uh, dr within an interval dr of r. And so we have our expression for the stationary state here. It's complex conjugate there. You can see the quantity, the phase, and the complex conjugate cancel, and we just get uh, a stationary or a time-independent value for the probability. So that's what we call a stationary state. A coherent state is one that's actually a superposition of multiple stationary states. Okay, so we'll write a coherent state that's a sum of this stationary state, state 1, and this stationary state, state 2, with some constant uh, fraction of the probability in state 1 and some in state 2, some fraction of the wave function in state 1, some weighting of the wave function in state 2. And we'll say that it's a coherent state if the um, time dependence of how that, uh, the probability of finding the electron at a particular point, the time dependence of how that changes is slow slow compared to this uh, exponential factor, this, this change in the phase. The change in the phase of the wave function is much faster than how the spatial distribution of the wave function moves around. That's what we call a coherent state. And so it's useful to look at um, this general expression for a coherent state with the superposition of state 1 and state 2 and ask what's the probability of finding the system at a particular location. Okay, so we take the wave function times its complex conjugate. That's going to give us the psi squared probability density. And when we do that, we're going to have a bunch of cross terms. Right? So we're going to have this term here, which is for state 1, the wave function of state 1, times this function, which is for state 1. And that's going to give us this first term. It's the um, the weighting, of the, the weighting of the wave function state 1 times the probability distribution for state 1. 
Likewise, we're going to get a cross term between the two state two states. And that's just the uh, probability distribution function for state 2 times some weighting for how much of the, the wave function is in state 2. And then we're going to get cross terms. So there's a term that looks like psi 1 times psi 2 star. Psi 1 times psi 2 star. And it's going to have a phase that goes like e to the minus i times e1 times e to the plus i times e2 t over h bar. So the phase of that cross term depends on the energy difference of the two states. And likewise, there will be a cross term for these two, which also now depends on the difference between state 2 and state 1's energy instead of state 1 and state 2. So writing out both those cross terms here, we can see that if C1 and C2 are real numbers, they represent the relative weighting of the two uh, quantities, um, then C1, C2 star, C1 star, C2 are the same. Um, and then we can write this e to the plus energy difference and this e to the minus energy difference as a cosine, right, using Euler's identity. e to the plus something plus e to the minus something looks like 1 half. It looks like 2 cosine of that something. So here's our 2 cosine of that something. That something is an energy difference divided by h bar times time. So an energy difference divided by h is a frequency. Right? h bar is frequency over two, or is h over 2 pi. So this is 2 pi times a frequency times time. This is a term, this cross term, is a term that oscillates in time at a frequency given by the energy level difference of the two states divided by h. Okay. It's the frequency of the photon given off in a transition between the two states. So we have a probability distribution that looks like state 1, a probability distribution that looks like state 2. And as this term oscillates, the sum of these three terms is going to go from, C, from state 1 to state 2, back to state 1, back to state 2. So the electron cloud is going to look like it's in state 1, then it's going to look like it's in state 2, and then back to state 1. It's going to oscillate between those two states. Unless you do what? Do work on it? Look at it. Do look at it. Oh, and collapse it? Yes. Okay, uh, so I'm going to just skip ahead a little bit. I think I have this in the notes. There it is. Okay, so um, I went too far. So this is what the uh, sorry, this is what the wave function for an electron in hydrogen looks like. 
um, plotted as a function of the radius. Sorry, the probability distribution plotted as a function of radius, or psi squared as a function of radius. Um, because the volume of space enclosed within a shell of a given radius increases as 4 pi r squared, the probability of actually finding the electron at a distance r depends as 4 pi r squared times psi squared. And it looks like this. It has a peak at 1 Bohr radius. And so when we talk about our Bohr atom as having an electron that's at a certain radius and it's orbiting, um, it's not too far off from what we get from the fuller quantum picture. The second highest energy state would also be spherically symmetric and have the same shape, but would have the peak further out. So you can have, that would be the 2s state. So s stands for an angular momentum of 0. And next time we'll go through and look at the angular momentum uh, quantum number a little bit. I'm just presenting this because there's a picture I want to show that sort of ties in nicely with where we are and makes a good breakpoint. So this is what the 2p orbitals would look like. 2p orbitals means second energy level or second principal quantum number um, and the allowed angular momentum uh, and the angular momentum is one unit of h bar instead of zero and depending on whether that angular momentum is aligned along x, y, or z you get these different p orbitals. Okay, so these represent what the wave function looks like for the 2p state. Right, this is the 1s state. And we can ask, uh, what happens when you have a superposition of, say, the 2p and the 1s state? And this is what the wave function would look like. It's, um, you can kind of see, in a moment, it's spherical. It looks like what we sort of imagine the wave function of the 1s state look like, just sort of a ball. And at another moment, it sort of looks like a, a I don't know, what do you call this? A dumbbell? A, and it's sort of oscillating between them in time. Okay, the rate at which it oscillates between them is given by the energy level difference divided by h, the rate the, in linear frequency. And you'll notice um, that the sort of center of charge is moving up and down. So what is a charge that's accelerating up and down doing? It's oscillating its, what do we call that? A, call it like an antenna or an oscillating dipole, a classical electron oscillator. This would be radiating away light or energy. So the transition from the 2p to the 1s state, this is, this is what it would look like. Um, and would radiate away energy. So our original picture in the classical electron oscillator model was an electron that was like a mass on a spring and was oscillating. And now we have this concept of this cloud defined by a wave function. But if that wave function is a superposition of two stationary states, the center of charge of that cloud is going to oscillate and basically reproduce what we had in the classical picture of a, a point charge moving up and down. Okay, so that's where we'll end up today. Um, we'll go back a few slides and introduce the angular momentum quantum number next time.
and the linear frequency of oscillations.